Hello, dear ones. It's me, Tim Clare, just doing a little intro to this week's episode of Death for a Thousand Cuts. I hope you're all well. Um, today's interview is, well, interview, it's a, a chat with uh, Grant Howitt, who is a game designer. He ex- explains a little bit about what he does on the episode itself. Now, I, want, I really wanted to speak to him, and, and, and like all the guests I have on, my main motivation is entirely selfish. They're people who I admire, they're creators who do stuff that I think is really fucking cool. They're personal inspirations uh there are also people who reply to my emails but um they're you know they're people whose stuff i really really like so uh that's the reason that i wanted to speak to him because i just read his uh new uh book that he's got out on his role-playing game spire which we talk a bit about and i just wanted to chat to him about it but at the same time i, I just want to preempt uh it, it, this is you know the talk we do go into tabletop role-playing games uh the kind of like his nerdy roots how he got into this idea of interactive storytelling we dive deep into the mechanics of how these games work and what works well as a character but we've we did the whole conversation with the assumption that if you have never ever role if you don't know what a d20 is if you've never played a tabletop role playing game and indeed have no interest in doing so if you maybe if you haven't even read very much science fiction or fantasy in your life that's totally fine um we try and define as many of the terms we use as we can and kind of give you an introduction so if it's a world that you're not part of welcome please please do come in and listen and you it may be just like an exciting safari through this uh world that you're not so familiar with of course if you do like it then it's going to be a real treat for you but if you are a uh, a, a writer who doesn't write in genre has no interest in writing interactive fiction or games of any stripe be they, they tabletop or video games you know you may well and quite reasonably wonder well what's in going to be in this episode for me tim are you just interviewing anyone that you're interested in now well you know to a certain extent yes i i am reaching out to people i i'm I'm a firm believer in cross training you know i myself am interdisciplinary i am a stand-up poet when my writing kind of when my fiction when i kind of came off the rails with that and i was feeling particularly low i moved into doing stand-up poetry writing performance poetry and performing on stage doing stand-up i wrote non-fiction i've been a script writer for video games i I, I'm, i'm a firm believer in trying different streams learning from different creative disciplines and all that feeds back into one's work and that versatility i think is is really really useful and we had Haley webster on a few episodes ago talking about how she felt like not having any genre boundaries had been really helpful for her and meant that she could always felt like she could produce because she always had these diverse forms of inspiration coming into her work and also because if something uh ran aground she could move on to something else she could have a few different things on the go but at the same time i've tried to steer the conversation so although we talk about a lot about what he does and a lot about the specifics of role-playing games and telling stories communally and what happens when you introduce chance into that process and we kind of touch a little bit on the kind of like semi quasi divinatory nature of that um with all that said i think there's loads in there that's going to be useful for you if you were just a writer if you want to think of new and radical tactics for exploring your characters for planning for steering but not shackling 
a story for world building for creating the uh, fictive base upon which your character's actions depend on character motivation on learning to say yes to ideas on uh, not setting your story in stone but also on how you might plan something out what are interesting questions on that conversion from the fear of the unknown to the excitement of possibility i think these are all things that we talked about that i found the talk really really inspiring you'll hear me kind of just squeeing and being a hopeless fanboy during it and none of that is a put on now you may well think that um i i should be more discerning as to be just going whoa that's amazing but it's genuinely is to me and of course i'm going to do some episodes i'll do some of the uh I've had loads of great responses, by the way, from you, uh, those of you who filled in the um, survey, the listener survey, Death of a Thousand Cuts listener survey. Just 10 questions, takes less than five minutes to fill in, but some of you have done that already. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, would love to have your ideas. Admittedly, it, you know, it is not always easy to hear constructive criticism, but it is definitely useful and it's good for the sake of the show. And also a show that it builds itself around editing and my offering constructive feedback. I can't fucking take some feedback from you guys. I am a total fraud. Thank you so much for being honest and telling me some stuff that you don't think works so well, some stuff I could improve on. Um, you, all of it very legitimate and right, and I will work on those things. Thank you so much. I want to make this show as good as it can be for you so you feel served by it. And one of the nice things was I heard from loads of you that you love the first page critiques where you guys send into uh, the first page of your novel and I have a look at it and give some feedback. So I'm going to be doing more of those. Of course, I never intended to give them up. I've just been doing a run of interviews and really enjoying them. I happen to book some up, but um, that that's always going to be a core part of the show. And so, and, and thank you so much because I didn't know that, that, that so many of you liked them because admittedly the only stats I've got to go from are listener numbers and and the emails you send me so it's been really useful to know those are a firm favorite with you and i will continue doing them but i would say even if this feels like you know and we joke about not wanting to sound like those nerds that you gonna get cornered by in a pub who start explaining their game to you and, and it's wonderful for them that they enjoy it but sometimes you just feel a bit like they're telling you a bunch of uh, in jokes from a long car journey that you weren't there for I think, you know, you're going to get to hear two people talking about fundamentally tapping into what what the reason that we write stories in the first place and probably the reason why you do too and the magic of that and how tabletop role-playing games and how the techniques for them, even if you don't want to play the games yourself, uh, can plug you back in to that primal and I think fundamental to being a human excitement and power of storytelling and creation. I don't think I need to say any more than that. Oh, except that if you uh, like the show and you want to support it, please buy my book, The Honours, uh, noting from your responses on the uh, survey. Lots of you, um, the majority of you have not read it or bought it, but intend to. Please, dear friend, convert that intention from a someday into a today. I'll put a link in the uh, show notes. Please, uh, I am a I'm an author, and I only make money if, and I can only continue to be an author if people buy my book. I would love you to read it, and I'd love to hear what you think. So please, just to click the link and order a copy, or just go into your local bookshop and order it there. But um, that would help me 
tremendously. If you want to help me with the hosting costs of the show, then I'll also put a link to my, I've got a little coffee page. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. And you can just uh, drop me a few squids. I won't spend it on coffee. I will spend it on keeping the lights on in Clare Towers. That's not what they're called. Okay, I've waffled long enough. Um, my dear friends, I hope that you enjoy this chat I had with Grant Howard. I found it hugely useful and I sincerely hope you do too. <laughs> yeah it really is cool okay so i'll just do a little intro and uh i'll introduce uh you and then if it's all right we can begin is that okay wonderful thank you so much okay oh excuse me i'm just gonna uh there we go had a little i had a little bit of a uh a, a, a gassy drink before i started okay i'm ready hmm Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, your wizened and yet somehow cheery, almost manically, suspiciously cheery guide through the wicked blasted world of creating stories out of nothing but your raw brain and the food you pour into your body. But I'm not alone on this journey today. Um, here with me in cyberspace, I have um, the... Uh, well, I'm going to raise a vexed question. I'd be really interested to know what you think your job is. But like um, creator <laughs> of stories and facilitator of stories in others. Um, uh, Grant, how, how are you, sir? It's really What nice even you. is your job, Grant? <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a really great... Why are you even here on my podcast? It sounded more accusatory than I meant it to sound. <laughs> Hello there. I'm Grant Howitt. I am a games designer. I suppose would be what I what I am, and I, I, I'm a game designer in as much as I design. I write books which let people make their own tabletop storytelling games. That's probably the best way I can describe it. Thank you. That's that sounds like somebody who's had to describe their job to many people. Hairdressers <laughs> mainly. That's the issue. Hairdressers. It's it's kind of like I with hairdressers. It's always the thing of do you do. You, are you quite open with them or do you make a split second decision about whether this person, whether you want to get into it? Do you have like a fake job that you say if you I, don't want to get into it with like a taxi driver or something? Uh, I tend like my, my fake job is novelist and or like or like writer or like ghost writer, because at that point I'll, I'll be oh, like nothing you've heard of, mate, mainly business to business stuff. I do, <laughs> I do quite a lot of that. Just, just, just like so, like I can talk, conceive, I can talk convincingly about writing, but not, but not sort of really get into the the like the nitty gritty of say D twenty systems versus D six pool systems, <laughs> which I oh I'm so excited that we're immediately going into so for people who haven't um, mm. for listeners there'll be some listeners who um, may not have even read a genre novel, uh, let alone. Uh, gone into the world of uh, role-playing games and tabletop role-playing games. Mm. Um, for those people, what is a tabletop role-playing game? Okay, so um, they are a machine for making stories that exists in book form. So they are generally a a series of rules and a and some sort of setting information. And then you and your friends sit around a table. One of you is in charge and is the game's master or storyteller or dungeon master or Big Mac Daddy, depending on what system you're using. 
and the other the rest of you will play a single character, much like the characters in an ensemble novel or TV show. And then uh, the games master presents a world to you. You answer. Uh, you you say what your characters are doing, and you sort of tell a fiction as a group as you go through. You're both the audience and the players, as it were, for this. Uh, although there are uh, quite popular shows like Critical Role, I think it's probably the most popular one, which is broadcast. They've got billboards in Los Angeles, and they've got a series of voice actors broadcasting their campaign about elves and goblins to audiences of hundreds of thousands, which I struggle to believe. <laughs> which and, and people can watch that. Uh, not only do people watch that on YouTube and stuff mm. after the fact, but it's on. It's broadcast live as well on mm. Twitch, right? And, yeah. and actually, at the moment, if... I mean, anyone listening to this now, if you just go onto Twitch or you download the Twitch app, you can go and find people playing role-playing games of mm. all stripes live, real people all around the world. Someone will be playing them right now whenever you go onto Twitch and it, you can watch them. Like, whether they'll be good or not, I can't promise, but you, you, you can get a picture of someone's living room, I guarantee. So I wanted to ask how you how you got started in all mm. of this. I mean, I ask this to like all the writers I have on, but um, how, what was, what was your sort of, uh, I, I kind of wanted to, I, you know, I want to use the the term, what was your kind of like gateway to this, which always makes yeah, it sound yeah, slightly yeah. illicit, which I think as, as nerds, uh, <laughs> I kind of always want to play it up that it seems like slightly kind of like darker and either like a cult or <laughs> as sort of role playing games become less and less like the eighties kind of like scare that they were actually demonic and evil, mm. um, I want to play it up more and yeah, make it we, sound we need like to we sex were them up again, don't we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm really looking forward to when my games master teaches me real magic. <laughs> Apparently, when I hit seventh level, I learn real spells, so I'm, I'm really, I'm really revved up. My so my gateway, I think, was uh, was Warhammer. Games Workshop was my was my gateway into this dark world, a game which I still play now. I have something approaching disposable income. Uh, I gave up for a decade in the middle there, but uh, I uh, I really like the the big the big unwieldy settings written by groups of about ten people, none of whom were talking to each other very well, and so that that world, like, having a chance to explore that was really exciting to me. So I was much more interested in reading the books and making unique models than I was in playing the games where you get your toy soldiers on a table and march them across and shoot each other. And so after that, I was I was getting ready to go to uh, Games Day 2000, which is a, which is kind of a big Warhammer festival, I suppose, a big, a, a big, a big, it was the NEC, Pat the NEC full of nerds and have them yell at each other. And I was getting ready, and some of the older boys uh, in the shop, uh, which which we were waiting in before our coach left at five a.m., were playing this role-playing game called Vampire the Masquerade. Vampire the Masquerade, or something along those lines, it was it was one from the family product. It's a game uh, from the early nineties uh, in which you play tragic goths who happen to be vampires, and they were playing what I would later see now to be a really terribly run game. Of of uh, of Vampire the Masquerade, where they all played evil vampires doing wicked things on Halloween. And <laughs> I, 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 was, I was sitting. I mean, there. that does sound that does sound kind of cool in oh, a yeah. kind of like like it was it was a it was what we call in the trade a crack game. In as much as they, like it wasn't doing anything hugely uh, innovative with the story, it was being silly and people were having fun. And that's that's <laughs> like like m- most of the things I write are crack games. Um. But 
they were playing this and I was sitting there and I would have been about 13 years old at the time and I had a bag full of um sherbet straws those those sweets full of sherbet which like which which the uh, which the stupid kids me included used to used to snort like cocaine and I was pouring those into my mouth and I was absolutely wrapped at, at this at this thing they were doing because I'd been playing Warhammer for a few years and I was used to only interacting with fiction either through books or through, like, say, writing my own little stories about it, or through playing the games and making up stories that went along. But here was this set of rules which let you interact with the fictional world and tell your own stories, and you could go and do whatever you wanted to do. I remember uh, they were sneaking into a nightclub, and one person charmed the doorman, and another person snuck in through the back window. And I was like, oh my god, you can do this? It was absolutely amazing. It blew me away. And unfortunately, the because they were older boys, they didn't let me play. Um, and eventually they actually got kicked out the store and had to play in the alley out back. <laughs> wow. Because it, it was not an official Games Workshop game. Nice. So people who were running it were like, I'm afraid you can't do that in the store. But they did that. And it had and a, a flavour of the illicit. You have to yeah. be pretty badass to be asked mm. to leave a Games mm. Workshop store, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, real, real roughy tufty boys used to go in there. And and so it was, and so that was kind of my awakening. And then, uh, because unfortunately, right after that, uh, right after that, I uh, I moved, uh, my family moved abroad, and I was in Portugal for a while. I went to high school in Portugal, so there was no real way to get physical copies of English language role playing games around. And so for the next four or five years, I just scoured the internet for free RPGs and read them. Never really played them, uh, except for when I could strong arm my friends, my much cooler friends, into <laughs> playing for a little while. Uh, and then and, and started writing my own. And the, the first one I ever wrote, I was 15. It was called Uncle Grant's Comedy Role Playing Game. And if, if, if Jesus is on my side, it will never see the light of day again. <laughs> um, can, can you... What, what was... What was so, it had rules so for wanking in about it. it that it cannot be released. <laughs> it had rules for wanking. Oh my gosh! <laughs> can, can, can we swear on this podcast? Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah, oh, yeah, really? yeah, yeah. Yeah, it had rules for wanking. It had it, it really outlined my <laughs> obsession with how cool smoking marijuana was. Um, it. Uh, it, it it was also in like the system was entirely stolen from a free game I found online about cyberpunk about Gibson esque sorry post Gibson cyberpunk, <laughs> but with uh, but with which... but with a, but with a wanking and, and oh, a yes. weed based metrics thrown yes. in yes very much you you see I was playing a lot of Grand Theft Auto and so one of the main ways of getting health back in Grand Theft Auto was finding a sex worker driving driving somewhere quiet with them and uh, and paying for sex which made your health go up and I was like. Cut out the middleman. If you get injured, <laughs> just just have a crafty wank, and you get back half the benefits. And, the, and this is, and so, and and, mm. and so those that that who would have known that that encounter uh, with uh, Vampire the Masquerade would have led you <laughs> to such to such to such heights. But I, I really understand that kind of moment of where mm. you are in the shop and you are seeing people because what functionally what you're seeing is uh people having this agency to do what they want you're like watching that it's, it's very very rare for someone to actually be able to watch a story being created mm. in front of their eyes i mean that is as much as you know we can put all this uh surrounding uh 
all this kind of like nerdy surroundings of it and imagine what that scene actually looks like. Mm. Underneath it, there was something there was something fundamentally powerful, right? About yeah, yeah, people yeah. going, here's what I want to happen next in the story. Yeah. And other people supporting them and building yeah. on that and working it forward and a story coming out of nothing. Mm. And like, like, so like, we, like we've all seen whose line is it anyway, and and, and other improv shows. And there's a trained professionals doing short, short form improv designed to entertain us. And watching those, uh, I've done a few improv classes in my time, mainly to become a better GM and a better games designer. But back back in the day when I was watching that, I'm like, I have no idea how they do this. They, this must be pre-written. I have no clue how these men can make this men, these men and these women can make this happen. But then watching these boys play Vampire the Masquerade it was like, oh, they're, they're making selfish decisions. They're being silly. This isn't like this isn't especially entertaining or tight or sharp, but it's what I would do. And it felt accessible in a way which improv never had. And it, it felt like we could tell whatever stories we wanted and it like there wouldn't be a problem. It, it wasn't like we had to try and sell the book afterwards, you know? It wasn't like we had to try and keep keep our ratings up. It was a it was a way of telling stories together, almost like round a campfire, everyone chipping in details and having the dice there to moderate and to uh, and to and, and to pace and to put in story expectations and challenge and that was like nothing i'd ever seen before it was it was a real it was a real uh eye-opening moment it was like the first time i ever ate a scallop (laughs) (laughs) can i ask about i I, want to and i realize i'm going into like slightly deep dives here but actually i think there's things to pull out that are Mm. useful to writers whatever genre you're writing and even Mm. if it's just you at the at the computer in fact th- this is the reason i wanted to talk really is is because i think there's so much about this passion for this lack of fear about telling a stories that so many people mm. get you know completely kind of caught up at the mm. uh, in front of the blank page what you did mention dice there yeah. and this element of chance oh yes what function because i can see how people can understand by analogy from like improv uh, okay, so we're going to communally tell a story and that feels like something quite atavistic and ancient and mm. deep within the uh, within the genetics of all human beings, this kind mm. of like gathering around together t- and we're going to tell a story. But then we introduce dice or mm. some element of random chance. Yeah. Why? What does that do and why is it important? Or is it important? Well, that's the, it's not necessarily important. Um, a lot of games do use that because in in improv, when we when we tell improvised stories, uh, the general rules are uh, always say yes and agree, or like and like and like like you don't have to say yes to every suggestion, but you should try and say yes to things which are established so you can build a coherent world together, and also always work to make everyone else look good. And if everyone does that, then generally a story will ha- a story will just sort of coalesce out of thin air as you as you run towards each other. So you're not like turning around to the people in your group and they say, "Hello, I'd like to uh, buy some bananas, please." And you go, "Well, you shouldn't have come on a military submarine, then, you big dick." And everyone you're laughs, big, right? You, you big asshole! There's no <laughs> bananas here. Get in the get in the torpedo tube. No. Um, and like and like uh, the 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 role of the games master is there to establish um, like fundamental truths about the setting as well. So like saying, oh, we are in a submarine, and you have eaten all the bananas you can stomach. That sort of thing. Whereas the dice are something of a leash and a boundary. 
to stop uh, to stop absolute freeform storytelling. So let's say, for example, I think the the most fundamental thing that a dice will do as a character, I will have a certain percentage chance of achieving any given kind of action. And in a simulationist role-playing game, I might have literally use heavy machinery 35% chance. And then I roll what amounts to a hundred-sided dice. It's two ten-sided dice and you use one as tens and one as digits. And then if I get 35 or less, I successfully pilot the heavy machinery. And that's kind of the most basic way you can do it. Um, there are other things, for example, there's systems where you can have, uh, I get to roll more dice if I'm doing this from love or from hate, or I get to roll more dice if I'm doing this for someone I really care about or a reason that I really care about. And those are referred to as story games, uh, which is what I write generally. I don't, I don't write simulationist games because I find them quite dull. The, uh, the dice, um, quite aside from stopping people saying, um, oh, um, cool, I solved the plot eat the uh, the armada and go to sleep. Yeah. Quite aside from doing that, they give you uh, boundaries which you can work with and expectations. So if I've got a 35% chance of operating heavy machinery under stress, say, then I can make a logically... What's the word? A logically... Logically stable choice, I guess, is, is, is the word I want to use, which isn't quite right. I'm trying to work out what the thing... Oh, sorry. I can make an informed decision. There yeah. we are. I can make an informed decision about my character's capabilities in the story. So I know that if I've got operate heavy machine 85%, then of course I'm going to try and operate this heavy machine. Whereas if it's 35, I'm all like, oh, this is kind of a last-ditch thing. But unfortunately... Th- I'm going to have to build the, the church. So I'm going to get in the <laughs> JCB. And that sort of thing. So the dice, the dice are there to um, stop people from being dicks, generally. They sometimes feel, when I've played games, they sometimes feel like there's... They, I don't know, there's almost... I'm going to sort of go slightly mystic here, but they make it feel mm. like there's an... They sometimes make it feel like there's an extra player at the table. 100%. Like there's this element of the game that is... That nobody, not even the... Mm. Uh, the the GM, you know, the games mm. master who's ostensibly that, that actually nobody is fully in control mm. of this runaway train. You know, it, it, it feels more fair. It's a, it, it operates on the same principle as tarot cards. In that, uh, I used to read tarot cards when I was younger. I did. I, I read tarot cards at my school Christmas fate when I was fifteen years old. That's don't do that. Mixed message. <laughs> Pro tip: Don't do that. Um, that was a bad idea. I uh, I couldn't afford to buy the good incense, so we bought some cheap incense, which it turned out contained some pretty hallucinogenic solvents. <laughs> Um, and so I was, I was wigging out pretty hard when, when my first client came into me, a an eight year old boy asking about whether or not his parents would divorce. Oh my gosh! Wow. So, yeah. Sorry. So not hallucinogenic, but definitely narcotic. And um, <laughs> the thing, the thing about tarot cards is, I'm like, I got like, I got like my my science teacher came in and she was asking details about like like real like family issues and deaths in the family. She, I was not prepared to deal with as a 15 year old wow. student at first. Wow, the, it feels like you got a peek behind the curtain. She kind of comes in wild eyed, kind of, yeah. and goes, "Science is a lie. I, <laughs> you've got to, you've got to know this." Mr. Grant, tell me. And, and so, like, 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 they came in, and they didn't want advice from fifteen-year-old Grant who uh, picks his nose and drinks iron brew. What they wanted was advice from these mystical cards, and. 
a way in which in, in a way in having like even if they don't believe in these mystical cards they realize that it is a gap between the person who's talking to you and you and the device and, and, and the advice they're giving almost uh, there's some sort of um, mystic force which is manipulating these cards and so there's a higher wisdom there but the same reason why the Pope wears a big hat you know it's all it's, is it it's, a divination all... device uh, yes, very much so. Yeah, um, but it like like it, it acts as a funnel, and God yells, and then you can hear it through the big funnel. Yeah, because it's, of the big end. <laughs> mm, yeah, it's um. Well, it depends which way you hold it up. It's the uh, it's 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 pomp and circumstance and ceremony, and by having dice around a table, there's an element that uh, oh well, well the fates are there. Oh well, like well we can try, but there's like, there might always be something un- unsuspected, which of course is bollocks because the GM can do literally whatever they want. That's really, I can see how that, because I've been, I'll be honest with you, I've been puzzling for ages about why I get writer's block and creative Mm. anxiety when I'm sitting down to write a novel. Mm. But when, like, I go and GM a game, I had a game last night, the players had reached uh, a room, there was a smear of blood under one of the doors, Mm -hmm. um... They, you know, they walked into the room. I had no idea what was going to be <laughs> yeah. happening that session. Not a clue. I didn't mm. know whether people were going to survive. I didn't know what direction they were going to go. I did not know how the story was going to go. Did Did I, you know what the smear of blood was? Um. So the way I, yeah, I mean, I know, I know the starting state of a lot of mm. things, and then yeah. characters in the game behind the scenes will react to what yes. the players do dynamically. But I, I'm, I'm, because I'm quite new to it. I'm quite a, a notesy person mm. and quite a preppy uh, pre- quite an over preppy quite a ridiculously over preppy person and i'm <laughs> learning to kind of shed that anxiety of making like a hundred page wiki and then the mm. players go actually we're not going to go in in that dungeon complex and you go oh well no. that's where you have to that's where all my notes are <laughs> um so i'm learning to kind of shed that and and i know mm. you've talked a lot about uh, not you know allowing the players to kind of feed into stuff and i'd like to talk to you about that in a little bit but um mm. i didn't the, i just wasn't worried and part yeah. of it i think it's like what you're saying about the tarot cards a part of it was i was feeling well if things go badly it's kind of a mix. I can diffuse that responsibility between a little mm. bit me, but also a little bit the players if they made dumb decisions. And also if the yeah. dice go don't go in their favour or yeah. then it, it feels like a shared thing that mm. means that no one person is to blame. And that makes it actually very easy for me to feel like I can contribute. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I think that as well, Like no matter what bullshit you put in there, it's possible to rationalise uh, a great deal of nonsense, uh, and so people like you can put into two non-connected things, and players will draw their own connections because people like building from re- from previously established materials. And this is so... how, this is how games get like derailed if you've overplanned, mm. right? Because you just go on the wall, you see a strange figure of a man holding mm. a pair of scissors. And a player around the table will go, ah, maybe that's the tailor we saw in town. Maybe no, he's been no, living no, for no. years. And you're like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, you then see underneath. The that tailor the, is the necromancer. Uh, but, but of course, if you're open to that possibility, yeah. then that's great. And stories jump out, right? Yeah. And like, and like, it's, there's, there's this weird sort of, there's this weird slightly, um, the role playing scene has a lot of crossover with the BDSM scene. Mainly because you, when when you go into the BDSM scene, you assume a role and you behave in a way in which you would never behave in day to day. 
you will say like um you'll in especially like in, in a dominant submissive relationship um a, a a in in a loving couple who are part of a dominant submissive um pair when they're playing together when they're engaging in that play the dom will do quite unpleasant things to the sub because they've because they've uh, talked about it and agreed to it beforehand and actually they enjoy it within this safe space and within role-playing games the players want to be hurt not killed hurt and they want to be tricked but not confused but surprised and there's this weird masochistic back and forth thing which you're sort of continually playing this daft shadow game uh, if if you run according to traditional rules where you're on the player's side but also you're against them yeah absolutely right you are you almost like you're almost like a weird mentor character in a movie mm. in like a kind of sports manga who seems <laughs> to be the baddie but then yeah. turns out is actually the mysterious director and benefactor of the academy and was mm. testing the main players all the time by yeah. setting them up to you know you are like the old retired baseball player who actually yeah. now runs the academy and has been <laughs> testing these people to make sure that they were ready to take over the mantle and face the real challenge that it it's like I tough love right yeah those baseball skeletons against you <laughs> yeah exactly that's do you think do you think then that this, I, I guess from what you're saying there, and of course, like, we are in roles, societally mandated roles mm -hmm. all the time, right? So, yeah. like, it, it almost just brings, makes us more conscious of the roles we choose in our day-to-day -day life, if that makes sense, that we've got some standard ones that we jump into and go, oh, it's me, the professional. Now I'm a, <laughs> you know, and that's, I mean, that is the one that feels most fake to me. Mm. I was I was wondering, because this is something that I'm quite new to role-playing games, but I wondered mm. if you found any element of it therapeutic, or you've seen oh, that in your players? Oh, my God, yeah, for sure. Definitely, 100%. Um, it depends how deep you get into it. So, like, there is a there is a surface level therapeutic um, nature of the fact that you are you are going through if it goes well a fun social interaction with people you like yeah so let's say for example on monday um i had a couple of mates over and one guy who i'd never met before but was a friend of a friend and we played a recent game of mine called jason statham's big vacation it's such a good name which uh, <laughs> Which was, it's like, like I, I didn't come up with the name. It was submitted by a listener to our podcast. And then uh, me and my co-author, Chris Taylor, developed it. And you are a series of... You are basically Jason Statham's agent, um, security guard, tour guide, uh, dog is one of the classes. We've got an expanded version. Also also his childhood imaginary friend, Snackodile. Well, I'm not quite... I'm really hungry for some snacks, Jason. Do you have any cookies or cupcakes? And uh, well, his stats are snacking, crocodile, and imaginary. But we played that. And that's the thing, like, you're laughing at the gags now. It's 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 quite funny. I'm really proud of, of, of what Chris managed to get there. That's very good. Um, but we, we hung out and we told a silly story about Jason Statham going on holiday in Texas and, and like riding an, uh, a restaurant off, a, off an exploding dam and getting buried under an oil rig, which apparently you get in famously landlocked Texas. <laughs> and we were, and we, we, we told these stories together and we had this really nice fun time. We, 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 we had a couple of glasses of wine and we had, we had, uh, a Laura, Laura laughs as the late great 
Cilla Black would say. And so on that, there's a there's this therapeutic way in that you aren't worried about say the like the normal back and forth of worrying what to say to people, um, like whether you're saying the right thing, whether you're talking too much about yourself, or you're not asking them enough questions. All those all those minor social anxieties. Uh, you don't have to worry about those because there's, there's a structure around it. And I think that the hobby attracts a lot of people, me included, who do struggle with that basic social stuff and do and who, who struggle to know the rules around what you can say and what you can't say because there aren't really rules. It's all, um, you know, what's the word? Nuance and intuition. But I've seen... Uh, once you get into a slightly deeper campaign... Uh, I'm sorry, a, a campaign is a term for a series of linked games. It's because the, uh, the hobby arose out of a war game called Chainmail, and so we still use the term campaign uh, to, to mean a longer story. There was, uh, when you run longer campaigns, I've had characters, like, people who've had problems with their mothers, and, uh, like, like, deliberately, I said deliciously, uh, deliberately and deliciously play, um, characters who have problems with their mothers, which means I get to play their snooty mums. And my favourite role to play out of any is the backhanded compliment-giving posh mum. I think that's <laughs> I think that's delectable. Like like Glenn Close style, that sort of thing. Yeah. I, re- I really love playing Glenn Close in my games. And there's there's a great deal of catharsis to that in terms of um being able to sort of not necessarily work out, oh, that's what's wrong with my relationship, but giving you a safe space to play at yelling at your mum, even if your mum is uh, angry that you became a barbarian rather than your mum is angry that you didn't become a lawyer. That sort of thing. Um, I mean, like, I, don't, I don't know whether this is a bit, um, this might be a bit of a downer um, for, for the podcast, but I've, I, I've struggled with depression um, for most of my adult life. I'm thankfully doing much better now. I'm on, I'm on antidepressants. But for a while back there, I wasn't. And I went through a tremendously cathartic experience uh, playing a live game where I volunteered to die. It was a... Uh, we were playing a, uh, a cell of freedom fighters who were captured and one of us had to be publicly executed uh, within with, uh, before the morning happened. And we got, we got the note an hour before dawn. And so you, and so the, the LARP is... You, so LARP stands for live action roleplay. Uh, you sit around and you talk to each other and you have your little motivations and your characters and you have to work out which one of you is going to die. And one of you has to die. And I, I managed to argue my way into it I was like, actually, I want to do this. Actually, I want to do this for the revolution. Actually, I feel like I can contribute something here. And uh, and we, I got blindfolded and shot and shot in the head. Um, and it was, it was really powerful and cathartic and moving because I'd been suicidal for a very long time, and it was there was something quite liberating about being able to lean into it in that way. That's thank you so much. Uh, that's really. I mean, I. I, I, it's not a, it's not a downer at all. I don't mean. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't mean to suggest. Oh, that's really. Uh, that's, that's a brilliant. really that's jolly great. story. That's that's cheered me up. But that is no. But it is because what you're going into there is this idea that stories. And I think there's something that as writers, it's easy to forget about when people are going. How do you get published? What's the best way to write a letter to the a, an agent? What I've found in mm. RPGs, in which you've touched on there, is this return. I had like a period. I have like an anxiety disorder, so I get mm. really anxious. I have panic attacks, and like you, I found ways, uh, you know, coping mechanisms and ways round it. And I, you know, my general trend has been better. Mm. But I had real problems with creative anxiety, and mm. 
playing role-playing games was my way back in to go, yeah. why do I do this? Why are stories meaningful to me as a human being? And I never m- created my characters as sort of uh, therapeutic, as like uh, uh, as satires on myself. Mm. But one of them, you know, is, uh, is a self-loathing uh, al- uh, drunken monk who mm. begun- becomes briefly sober and then... And then now is a, a drunken monk as all drunk monks m- must want to be. And, you know, I've been mm. teetotal for six years now. Mm. It never occurred to me that I was writing about doing myself, but more and more the things that he deals with yeah. are things that I've de- dealt with. And then my other character was a uh, was a incredibly uh, craven and anxious kobold, which those of you who have not experienced the kobold race, as in Dungeons & Dragons, they are... Um, a small, like reptilian creatures who tend to be either incredibly uh, afraid or incredibly ingratiating and groveling. <laughs> and I never thought, oh, I'm taking the piss out of myself here. This is a great way for me to explore my anxiety disorder. But it, like you say, it's like a safe play- way that you can lean into it. And I've had friends with mental health problems who've played games uh, like Cthulhu where mm. they're a character who's going mad while mm. they're experiencing their own mental health difficulties. Yeah. Uh, and and you, so, I here's the next question. This is a this is a big question. That's going to okay. make it's almost impossible I'll, to I'll, answer. I'll put on my I'll put on my helmet. So, what makes a good character? Oof. Now I think this is this is um there's there's a lot of answers to that question, and there's a lot of schools to how role playing should be done. I very much fall into uh, into the idea that role playing is an entertainment first and foremost. Uh, we are we are entertaining each other and we are entertaining ourselves. So a lot of people, um, especially traditionalists, when asked what would ma- what like, what makes a good character, is one who is fully rounded, has likes and dislikes, who uh, who will act in certain ways, uh, and is is uh, has has reliable ways in which they can uh, sort of ways in which they can be relied upon to act. Hates, loves, drives, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that's bollocks. Because unfortunately, when you define everything about your character before you hit the story, what you end up, you end up blocking off uh, potential options for yourself. So let's say, for example, um, I have, uh, I'm playing a cleric in my game of Dungeons and Dragons. I'm playing a cleric who will never steal and, will, and who, who will never, ever consider stealing to be a fine thing. And of course, this is Dungeons and Dragons, a game about killing things and taking their shoes, right? Yeah. So, so this is this. So, like, stealing is going to come up at some point, and so I can choose to be an absolute ass and block story, and be like, no, no, don't steal that thing. I'll report. I'll arrest you. And it's like, come on, we're supposed to be stealing a few things here and there. We're playing chaotic dickheads, you know. And if you if you compare that to um, a character who is like, I don't like stealing. I think it's wrong, but. I'm going to rationalise why I think it's okay this time. Yeah. And I think the 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 core idea of role playing games, if you if you role play your character, um, just in like in, 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 unless you build a very specific one, if you role play your character with an 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 an, an understanding of survival and doing the best they can, there is no way they would take part in the standard events of a role playing game. They would give up, go home, and farm goats. Yeah, that is that is the best thing to do is to just start farming, because it's very dangerous. 
it's really, uh, it's heartbreaking. You're going to get injured all the time. You're going to be sleeping rough. You might not have anywhere to live. Your friends are going to die. You're going to have to murder sentient creatures to get what you want. This is not a job which normal people undertake. And so when you go into stories with this with this really well thought out character with eight pages of backstory you've submitted and double checked past the GM and, and, and woven into the setting, you get someone who is who's afraid to take risks. You get someone who is who who will do things who will um who will who do what is optimal for them in that situation, which does not necessarily make a good story. It's like if at the start of Lord of the Rings, uh, so I, I wrote a piece about this many years ago, and the example I have in it is if what is what is it if if at the start of uh, the Hobbit, um, Bilbo told, told Gandalf to fuck off, and like and like and like didn't go out, didn't do any of it, none of it happens, the whole thing doesn't happen, and like it makes perfect sense for the Hobbit to be like no thanks, just get, just like get rid of the dwarves please, this is my house, or I'm gonna run away, whatever, I am a thief after all. But he goes out and make and, and it's and it's like well he doesn't want to do this, but let's work out why he does do it because characters are interesting. We generate drama, we generate growth, we generate um, satisfying play experiences when characters are pushed outside of their comfort zone and do things they're not good at. And I think the way you can make a good character is to define barely anything about them to write mysteries into them. My favourite piece of equipment I can give any character is my mother's second best sword. Because mm. there's there's a great deal wow. of play in that. You don't you don't expose and I, I should also say like like this this is me recycling role playing game articles I wrote about five years ago. Um there's there's a great deal of play in that. You don't say my mother was this woman, and she was married to this man, and I was raised in this country. Now, now she didn't give me my best sword, because that went to my brother, who is in this army. Now, of course, her rifle went to my sister. It's like, no, I've got mum's second best sword. And you don't say anything else, and then you, you know that you have this hook. You have this um, one-sider Velcro, as it were, in your, in, in your pocket. And then you just drag it along the story until it sticks. And if you can come up with like four or five good hooks, that will make you a much better and more interesting character to play and listen to and GM for than a whole book of backstory. Because the the idea of writing stories is having characters change and having characters come come up against one another. And especially in um, in role playing, you're not telling one story with one person. You're improvising a story with a group of people and the story that you're writing could never happen any other way it would not be the same it might be similar it might follow similar tropes but the events that take place around your table are unique and if you try to define that at home where you are sterile and safe and nothing is coming up against it it's going to jar horrendously which is why i advocate not planning your games at all but we'll get onto that in a bit that's oh my gosh you are i'm you're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> I can feel my brain struggling to like map new m- neural pathways. So like it's like going the, the like this paradigm will not fit in my current structures. Mm. So you basically, from what just to make sure I've understood you here, it's this idea that like when we're trying to sort of plot things and plan it and make it. And go. What would be good? What it's? I guess it's like trying to. My closest analogy, you know, from the stand-up I've done is like mm-hmm. trying to write a stand-up set entirely, like in your office, and not taking it to market, and actually mm. seeing what makes people laugh and think, and then you come up with jokes and tags, and you add on a little aside on the end yeah. of a joke in the moment, because mm. then you're in the you're in conversation. 
Yeah. Which is what stand-up is. It isn't a set of notes that you write down or in text. It's a conversation you're having with a live audience where they laugh at something and you add something later on. And yeah. so you cannot create this adventure with you and and you're from what you're saying you're also you're leaving stuff deliberately um jagged right or like with bits that can connect rather Mm. than trying to make a character who feels complete because if they're just a perfect like little kind of like china egg then Mm. there's nothing there's no bits that can kind of mesh with other cogs and start a whole machine moving, right? And that's the thing. I think that it that this this is my advice for uh, for role playing games. Not not necessarily for books, because with books you have absolute um, narrative control. So your characters always do precisely what you want them to do, and they do it for reasons that you lay out. And so it might it might help some authors. Um, I've I've written one unpublished novel which I sort of just went at uh, half. Co- well, not, I didn't go at it half cocked. I moved to Australia. And I didn't have an internet connection, so I wrote a novel on an iPad, which I cannot recommend doing. Wow! It was te- yeah, it was a terrible plan. Um, and I shopped around a couple of, of agents; they didn't take it. I should have I should have pushed it around more, and it never really took. But with that, um, I had a much more solid way of plotting out. So, like, I knew what characters had done before, even if I didn't mention it in the text. I knew where they grew up. I knew where they went to school. I knew what was important and 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 what could reflect from them. And so that way, when I was writing dialogue as them, I knew what I had to draw on. Whereas in an improvised story, it's I find it much better to leave these things undecided. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna step in and go. I think that you know. I think you but your that your thing holds true for writing novels mm. as well. I think giving yourself thinking about a character like a character that you'd give someone in a role-playing game and going mm. how can i give this how can i build a hook in here what questions are there here? Yeah, yeah exactly how can i give this character something now i mm. don't know what's going to go on but for a first draft i think that makes it exciting it's like it's a yeah, bloody true, long actually, process yeah. and, and and as much as there's this kind of false distinction between this thing's improvised and mm. this thing is well what are you doing at the page you, yeah, you're you you still have to improvise. You can just go back. That's all there is. Um, and I think that planning stuff. What happens if you overplan? Mm. Is yes, you can choose to just you can just like you can just uh, brute force it and go. Well, mm. this character does go this way. Yeah. But it will. But you start feeling a sick, sickly feeling in your gut because yeah. you know it's wrong and it doesn't mm. make sense. And you're like, why the fuck doesn't he just take the money? And jump out the window. Why is he explaining himself to the captain of the guards? The, he like, doesn't respect like the, him. The or, interesting well, it says thing so at that point. The interesting thing at that point is that your reader doesn't know or care. Your reader doesn't know that this is out of character because they haven't read. They haven't read your notes. They haven't read the stuff that goes on. It's like, oh, this character's doing this thing. I wonder why that's happening. And unless unless you've had this big established character to suddenly have that, you can justify afterwards. I should note as well when I when when I said I I wrote more of a more of a background that was for the second draft. The first draft I wrote in in one go, as it were, just going through and sort of and like saying, oh, I figured this character will do this thing, and then just carried on and ran it, and it, and it was eighty thousand words by the end of it, and it was like, oh, okay, maybe I need to just sort of tie up some of the many loose ends in this unformatted document. But I think if you give characters questions, then you give them something which... You give them a reason to move through the world, and you give them something which the reader can be interested, the audience can be interested in answering. But if you if you have that incredibly... If, if you have that full written backstory for every character and who they are and what they do, then you run the risk of saying uh, of saying no rather than saying yes. 
to yourself when you're writing. That's and and the so this is really and the reason this is exciting and useful to me is these are all things that I have sort of had half formed as intuitive mm. like beliefs. But as you're talking about it, I'm going, oh, that's why. And you're <laughs> right. If you've got a backstory. Then, when something more exciting presents itself, mm. you'll go. Ah, but it's not in the script. Uh, no, yeah. we can't. It's like, uh, no, um, Bilbo is actually scheduled to be picked up by yeah. a a werewolf. Is going to. Be, I mean, maybe that'd be a more exciting story. But <laughs> it, it's yeah, and and you can, and later you can go back and go. Well, I'm this actually this hook never bears fruit, so I can mm. just remove that. But yeah. it's a much more richer if. Um, it's just that it has the messiness of life in it, I think, mm. which is, and when it has that messiness, and it's exciting for you. Mm. So uh, there's, there's a concrete example I'd like to give of this happening. I'd, uh, I was running a game, it's a game called 13th Age, which is like Dungeons and Dragons, but um, slightly more loose, as it were, and it's more focused on telling big stories. Uh, it has some really has some really clever and beautifully thought out mechanics, such as every character has one unique thing. And they have uh, they have connections to these big power players in the world, which operate largely outside of their control and influence the story. So it gives you the sense of, of of a wider world working with icons and archetypes, uh, but but leaves you room to tell your own improvised stories. And I'd run I'd run a couple of games to the group I was running it with, and they were all having fun. But um, we I, I asked them what they fancied what they fancied for the third sort of act in the campaign. And they were like, I oh, would really like some NPCs. Because we really like talking to your NPCs, but generally you've put us in, in situations where we're having a lot of fights or a lot of exploration and we want to talk to people. So N- like, NPCs are non-player characters oh, yes. for anyone Sorry. listening. Yes. <laughs> non-player characters. And so I was like, very well, I shall write a city story. And I sat down at my table with a cup of coffee and I did this big relationship web. So I wrote down everyone who was important in the story and I wrote down the player characters and I started connecting them. I was like, what, what would they want from them and what plots are going on over here? Oh, that's interesting. Okay, that's fascinating. And I got this all sorted out and I had it, had it all in my head, had it in note form. Brilliant. I've got, I've got the first game sorted out. Oh, this is going to knock their fucking socks off, I thought. And I went there and the cleric goes to her, to her temple, to an allied temple. And, uh, and, then, and then I dropped... And I dropped into into MP into NPC mode. I was like, "Oh, cleric! Someone's stolen our holy symbol. <laughs> They're getting away on the rooftops." And it felt like a quest in a role, in, in like a computer game. <laughs> yeah. It felt like World of Warcraft. It was like they just and, wandered into Westworld, right? And like a robot yeah. had been activated and doing its like yeah. little bleep, 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 bleep. And so, like, they went up onto the roof and saw this mysterious cloaked figure running away with this like with 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 the, with, the, with the sacred item from the altar. And the cleric looked at the wizard and like, "Do you want to do you want to run across the rooftops?" No, I, I don't want to fucking do that. Mm. Okay, cool. And just stopped. And he just absolutely stopped. And, I, and then, like, and but like while this was happening, the barbarian, uh, I, I hadn't, I, I had some stuff planned for her later, but she had established that she'd gone to a finishing school, which was incredibly violent, which is how she became a barbarian. Wow. That was and th- that was the gag of the character. We hadn't really explored anything around from that, but we were like, okay, cool. So the finishing school you went to has been rebuilt after it burnt down here in this city. And so, and 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 so, and, and so, I started asking the players questions. I was like, okay, cool. So I hadn't written this down. I was like, okay, so um, um, what sort of thing is that? I was like, oh, oh, uh, they run, they they have they have a pit fighting arena and and bar. I was like, okay, what's it called? It's the slap and tackle. Brilliant, <laughs> nice. The slap, the slap and tackle. Okay, and and uh, and what sort of things go on there? And and the player was like, oh, well, my school's mascot was an owlbear, so we have owlbear fights. Wow. Fuck yes, you have owlbear fights. Yeah. And so and so like between me and all the players, we worked out this. 
um, this regimented um, way or like the ceremonial stages of having an owlbear fight. Uh, which which either you fight an owlbear, also which which I should note for non D and D players, an owlbear is the bottom half of a bear, and then the top half is a bear sized half of an owl. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it would be it would be kind of beautiful. weird and terrifying in another way if it was just an owl sized top half of an owl, right? <laughs> 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 it'd be kind of that would be a lovely that would be a lo- like lovely kind of like su- offshoot of the owlbear species is the kind of mm. terrible wizard's experiment to yeah. can we make a top half of an owl on a bear? <laughs> Get oh. the head of the wrong fucking size. <laughs> this one's useless. It can't eat enough. Can't eat enough mice to stay alive. <laughs> um, maybe we'd get it to eat plankton. The uh, the so we so or, or you dress up as an owlbear and fight each other. And we had this and and like and the fighter came in and he started betting on the fights and then they were sort of skewing it to cheat on the bets. Amazing. We, and, and and so all the stuff that I just improvised that the players and I had built together was really fun and satisfying and exciting and funny and all the stuff that I prepped beforehand sucked. And what I learned was when I when I prepped stuff, when I put a lot of effort into the to the social and it's like so like the mechanical elements of role playing. So like if I want to say, oh, I want them to fight five goblins, I've got to write down what five goblins can do in terms of fighting. That's okay in terms of planning from in my book. But in terms of what the social relationships are, in terms of what these all these webs are, when I prep something, when I wrote it down, what I was doing is turning up to the table and saying, This is the best I could do. And if this isn't good enough, I couldn't do any better. And when I when I improvise with them, and when we role play together and build things, it's it's not this is the best that we could do, but this is what we've done. This is what we're doing together right now, and this is what's true. And so everyone's a lot more forgiving. And then from that forgiving nature, people put their own things in, and people get more excited and enthused and engaged. They start supplying their own details. And if if once players supply their own details, that means you don't have to do anything. Your job is done. Every one of the things which really frustrated me, so I wrote a game uh, with uh, Chris Taylor called Unbound, it'd be about three years ago, and Unbound is a uh, universal uh, storytelling system with, we called it cinematic tactical combat, in that it, we think, we hope, it manages to recreate action movie fights while still making them tactically fun, which was a challenge, and unfortunately the problem with Unbound is that it's a universal role-playing game, so you can't sell it. You can't sell people ideas of the stories, uh, because if you tell them what stories they can tell, you're rather defeating the point. Huh. So we wrote that. We we did okay on Kickstarter, you know. Um, we 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 got it to print. And one one of the fundamental um, design decisions in doing Unbound was that every week when I was so when I was younger running games at university, I'd sit down and I'd prep for like two three hours. I'd draw out my maps and I'd get my I'd, I'd write up my notes in pen in my book and maybe I'd do little drawings and stuff as well and the players just turned up and all the players had to do was react and they effectively got the same amount of enjoyment out of the game and I was like that's bullshit, why can't I just react <laughs> why can't I turn up and make it up as, as we go along and so we came up with these things in Unbound called Fates and um, like the, like having character goals is a fairly common thing to have in role playing games. It's things like um, oh I want to uh, I, I want to avenge the death of my father, and when I avenge the death of my father, I get um, plus three to father avenging or what have you <laughs> mechanically. Uh, whereas goals are like 
I'm interested to see this happen to my character. So, like, common goals... So they're called fates. And common fates were things like, oh, um, I have an argument with my ex-wife over our children. And when you... So, like, you had you had one you picked yourself and one chosen by the group, and when you completed both of them, effectively, you leveled up. Wow. And it meant that whenever you turned up and ran a game, you kind of knew what was already happening. But the GM, the, I mean, the GM can guide these through and weave them together and set them up. But like the like we we were running this quite uh quite a pulpy cyberpunk noir campaign uh, where where like uh, the the uh, the mega corporation was digging into the was digging into other dimensions and mining out raw liquid shadow and you know evil. Yeah. And the most exciting thing we had was when the uh, the Lazarus Corporation sent down the Angels Electric, um, who were the enemies of the Shadow uh, Corporation, to um, to basically kill this guy and abduct his children. And so he like like that was that that that, that was the scene. This was, was like, I want my three kids to be involved. And so we put them in that scene. It was really powerful. We had this we had this scene where like there's these power armor guys are knocking through the side of his building, uh, and like and like 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 messing up his kids' bedroom. And he's sort of <gasps> shoulder barging them out onto the street. But because of, because of that was so powerful, and because the way that Unbound works, the next campaign we played were those three kids ten years in the future. Oh, that's so cool. Dealing with the fallout of their father's actions. Oh. And that was, and it was really exciting. And like, I hadn't planned any of that. I hadn't sat down and said, "Okay, right. Well, this character has kids. It's just uh, Ed, the player, has like, I want my kids to be involved in a scene." I was like, "Cool. All right. Cool. We'll make it happen." And we had things like, um, "I want to lose access to." to we had we had a different campaign where this uh, this character had a truck which was powered by the spirits of uh, by the spirit of an ancient warrior, and she was like, "I want to lose the connection to my ancient warrior truck and just have the steering wheel." And see what wow. happens, and so and so, like it gives people the chance to actually say, "I want, I, I want you to lay a misfortune upon my character. I want to be challenged in these interesting ways," and then it rewards them for doing that. And I think that if if we like, we can afford to be much more open. And that's the the, the other thing about um, the BDSM community where it crosses over with role playing games is if you are all honest adults and you talk about this in sensible ways before you go into it you have a much healthier and more unpleasant experience than if you just sort of wing it and if you can say to people well what do you want to happen to your character what do you want to happen in this game what sort of things can we work together and we can surprise each other as we go along we'll tell this fun story rather than I have a riddle hidden beneath the earth. You must solve it <laughs> using only the things on your character sheet. I, of course, have infinite resources, so fuck you. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's like setting... I'm just... In my head, I'm now like converting this into ways that it's... Um, that, that this can be sort of repurposed by mm. like the forever anxious and uh, frustrated uh, writers. And I think yeah. like it's that idea of one going that that thing of like having boundaries in um um I'd, before we get to the end i'd really like to talk a little bit about mm. spire because i think it's fantastic mm. and i think people really love reading it but um you talk about having um in your sort of advice for gms you talk about uh lines and and veils and i think that kind yes. of is, t- is touching into what you're talking there where you know as and, and this could it's, it's for it's for players but also mm. as a writer you can think well what is my story not going to do? Well, I'm not going to m- murder these characters, perhaps. That's a line that you won't cross. Yeah. Or maybe there's certain things that you won't show because you don't think it's pertinent to the story. And I'm, I'm yeah. you know, I'm, I, I realise when you were 
are, are talking about it. You're talking about what people are making sure people around the table are comfortable. It's mm. partly an access- accessibility thing and a mm. thing that everyone feels happy and safe. But um, it's that idea of taking a story and then not having to know every last detail yeah. planned out, but just going, here's my character. Mm. And now I'm going to give them this fate. I'm going to say, I want this character. What do they care about? Well, this is a, a school teacher who's uh, really uh, charismatic. Is a kind of Mr. Chips style kudos with all the kids. I want to see, I want to see her um, face. Okay, she's going to be in a situation where um, one of the kids in her class gets uh, stolen by uh, giant winged uh, demonic quadrupeds and and, and, and flown away while she is while she was focusing on like being a cool teacher she's gonna have to face that thing no I don't know how any of that it feels to me like you're creating while she was skateboarding (laughs) yeah exactly while she was going hey kids like uh, geometry is radical and doing like an ollie over um, a protractor but that's the thing it's like what you're talking about is creating these like instead of going I need a plan to know exactly yeah. how this character is going to get from A to B, you're creating sort of story seeds or destinations. I'm mixing my mm. metaphors terribly here. Yeah. Um, to allow, and then rewarding people's creativity when it happens, mm. and so that creativity gets stronger because every time mm. they go, "Hey, how about this?" Instead of going, oh, "That is not in the plan," you go, "Let's see what happens yeah. when we yeah. try it." Yeah, let's work it out. Like the um the I I really rarely try to say no as a GM. I'll try and work things in, and it's led to some really, it's led to some bullshit in the <laughs> games that I run. Like really spiraling out of control. I like one of them ended, and I'm not I'm I'm gonna t- tell us as shortly as I possibly can. But it ended with an animated statue of Jade Batman marrying a skeleton. Wow. And like it was supposed to be a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. <laughs> it was supposed to be fairly standard, and just because I said yes too much. That all, that all, and that was all the players. That all happened, and I think that um, acting as, a, as 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 an administrator and as a guiding hand, and basically you're in charge of the tone, you're in charge of the of the overall feel of the story you're telling, and then you can sort of allow or disallow other things that people put in. the The most powerful phrase I have in this regard is, "That's not a story I'm interested in telling." And I think that if if you can, if you can think what stories you're interested in telling, then like from an accessibility, from a sensitivity point of view, you can say, "Oh, you know what? I don't want any child abuse in my games. That's not a story I'm interested in telling." But you can equally say, "I don't really care about traveling between places. That's not a story I'm interested in telling." So can we just skip that bit? And it lets you focus on what you give a shit about. And, and of course, that can, and like you're saying, that can all be done in dialogue with the players, right? And they can yeah, go, sure. here's a story I am interested in telling. Yeah. I really love... I mean, following the same kind of uh, logic has ended up, I thought I was being like fairly conservative with my campaigns. I currently have to plan a ceremony for one of my players uh, marrying his android chef. And, nice. it, and it's a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. <laughs> like, that's not supposed <laughs> to be. And, and yet, and yet, even in the kind of things that sounds to people, I suppose, when they're in Precy as yeah. so silly that you would have almost no investment in. Yeah. It's funny how a bit of investment and stakes creeps yeah. into those things. Yeah, for sure. And you don't always know what tone you're going for. And sometimes like, a tone it's... is a strategy, not a genre. And that's... tone can switch. The like the, the the other thing which I would encourage people to do as well is change it. 
change what you're doing. Like all like uh, as we were saying before, like um, you want your character to do a thing. It's like oh, but they wouldn't do this thing because that's been established. Change it. No one knows about it. You, like it can say whatever you want, and if if at the start, like if if you're sketching out notes for your campaign, and 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 then at the end you're like, oh, this isn't a horror campaign anymore. It turns out this is just a slice of life drama. Well, it looks like you've written a slice of life drama, buddy. Like it's there's this there's this idea that that, that we that we have to we have to get it right. We have to we have to have it perfect. It has to exist, and all it has to do is function. Oh, that's so. I can. That is like. That is that is like balm falling upon the uh, upon the wounds of writers everywhere. You don't have to get it; it just has to function. And yeah. I think writers suffer more than so badly from one true story syndrome, mm-hmm. where there is a single story that already exists and, somewhere in and, that block of marble, and they have to and they have to create it instead of seeing it more like just a weird plant and we're going to mm. cultivate it and and it isn't that exciting and, and this is what playing games and what you're talking about uh, mm. changes the paradigm because instead of seeing unknowns as a problem you have to like fix because mm. you're fucked because you don't know how it's going to end <laughs> it's yeah. you remember that it's possibility and impossibility yeah. is potential and in potential lies all the adventures you could possibly yeah. imagine and some you couldn't imagine yet uh, and mm. that's exciting C- can i just want to cuz we're kind of Tim um, i'm tingling all over this is incredible yeah <laughs> yes um <laughs> i just want to move on to sort of to sort of uh, as to before i run out of time with me um mm. just saying how brilliant everything is um i, I could we talk a bit about spire your yeah, sure. um, rpg that's just come out because i've been reading uh through the book and it's mm. so exciting and I'd just like you to kind of, and also it's very, also from reading it, one thing that struck me is you do explain everything down from this is what a role-playing game is, this is how a session might look. So it is accessible to anyone who has actually not played one before to pick it up and start having mm. a look through. Could you explain what Spire is? Okay. Um, so Spire is a, uh, is a we, we use the term fantasy punk. Um, uh, only once in the Kickstarter, and I think we maybe should have used it in the book once or twice. But fantasy punk is a is is we wanted to look at traditional fantasy tropes and reimagine them. We wanted to try and uh, talk about worlds and like have fantasy uh, world which was refreshing and exciting, telling a story which we hadn't seen told before, and um, really sort of flex our creative muscles. Because if there's one thing that Chris, so my co-author Chris Taylor, who wrote it with me. Uh, there's one thing that Chris and I like doing. It's, it's it's we like describing weird lists of things. We absolutely adore that. In fact, Tim. Dis- uh, so uh, we, we we did it on our website for a while. We did, we had um, uh, uh, urban horror and um, uh, traditional fantasy uh, D10 lists of things that might be true, and you called it ideas boss rush. Yeah. Which which stuck with me. That's that's it's a really brilliant way of it's, looking. I'll, at it. I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to um, check out mm. those lists of ten things, but they are brilliant and actually reading reading that was one of the things that inspired some of the exercises in the mm. first week of my couch to 80k writing boot camp because that mm. idea of there's not one right answer but here's 10 possible things it could be is weirdly eat less stressful to think yeah, of than sure. just coming up with the one true 100%. answer yeah like uh we'll uh, we'll spend upwards of an hour trying to get a name right and it's and it's like well, what if it just had five names and then you can pick whichever <laughs> one you want? 
So, um, so just 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 to 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 to, to proceed the setting of Spire, um, they are there is a there's a traditional fantasy race called Dark Elves, and Dark Elves or Drow as they're called are in in most fiction. Um, big evil bastards with midnight black skin, white hair, who live underground, worship spiders, and there's only one good one in all of Dungeons and Dragons. His name is Dritz Duerden. Didn't make that up. Uh, he ha- he has a panther and two scimitars, and he just solves all the problems because he's special and he's a real douche. I've no time for Dritz Duerden. And the uh, every other dark elf is evil. And there are some uncomfortable racial uh, issues around that, because like like there's there's the idea of, of of like being cursed with black skin, and being cursed to live underground, and there's some really uncomfortable narratives, and I wanted to sort of examine that like the narrative of Drow and have it as like well what if they were just normal people because fundamentally the thing which the thing which interests me in uh, in fantasy settings are normal people coming up against the absurd. Um, I'm not huge. Like a flying castle is only as good as the people who live in it, or the people who are trying to break into it, or say the thirty thousand birds that are carrying it and shitting everywhere. There has to be something mundane to anchor the fantasy. So we worked really hard to write up Drow as a believable um, race, and then a, a race which would exist under oppression. So they live in this big city called Spire, and about 200 years ago, uh, another thing which we try to do is avoid writing any history in the book because it's boring. We'd, we'd much rather write about what might happen tomorrow rather than what happened 200 years ago. But the uh, the city of Spire um, is a really big city. It's far too big to, to exist to the point where uh, reality has started to go off and curdle in the middle of it. So there's, like, there's weird magic, which also, from a mechanical point of view gave us a place where weird things could crawl out of and about it's been owned by the dark elves for millennia and about 200 years ago the high elves these or alfia elfia beautiful creatures from the far north who are sort of like french aristocrats uh, aristocrats crossed with aliens uh turned up and took it they they, they they took it in a brutal and bloody war and now the 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 uh, dark elves are allowed to live in the city um if they if they serve their uh, their elfia masters and if they uh, if they perform durance, basically uh, uh, indented servitude for um, for four years once they come of age, and the spire spire is a game is a game about playing. You play a, basically a terrorist cell. You play a gay. You play a, a group of people who've, who've sworn themselves to service of our hidden mistress, a forbidden drow goddess, and your your mission. Uh, the 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 uh, the what's the word. The overall goal of every single campaign of Spire is to kick the High Elves out and take Spire back by any means necessary. And uh, one of our um, one of our supplement writers, uh, he was reading through the setting and he was like, "Holy shit, you're playing Hamas!" <laughs> and actually, what you're doing is playing you're playing you you are you are undertaking acts which would be seen by the populace uh, at large, even like your friends and family, as terrorist acts in an attempt to uh, take out a vastly um, tactically uh, sort of resourceful re- resource focused superior I'm gonna try that one again a force who has more money and power than you you have to you have to fight dirty and it's a game about what you're willing to lose and what and what you're willing to sacrifice when you start treating people like things when you start uh, well, when you get deeper and deeper into this how how you how we have um, magic uh, as technology and therefore as in, in a cyberpunk way, how technology allows people to do strange things, and the elite have access to this. So, like in Neuromancer, for example, like the elite no longer die, 
they clone themselves and are and and, and are bought back in, in in a in a numbered fashion. And in this, the the very wealthy can afford the magic, which means you no longer die. The very wealthy can afford things like air conditioning and central heating, and um, you know basic health care. And we wanted to talk about that in a fancy setting, and we did. And that's Spire. Do you have any questions? Um, yeah, I just want to. I, I mean, I, I think like one thing that I was really, really interested about. Uh, well, there, there's loads of stuff, but like to like just to bring it down to um, to, to a couple of things that might be useful to writers who are listening. And actually, although admittedly some of this we've already covered, but you kind yeah. of talk about. Um, yeah, you talk about uh, you have this section of like general uh, GM advice. Hmm. And uh, I actually just going through it, so much of it felt like it was really good advice for writing a decent plot and decent characters. It's, it's pretty much the same thing, from what I can tell. Yeah, like, like you had this thing of like saying um, one of your rules is something's always at stake. Yeah. If you can't figure out what could go wrong, uh, uh, or, and or and if you can, but it's not interesting, don't bother asking the players to roll dice. So like this yeah. idea that you want to be like looking for ways that you can apply pressure to the protagonists mm. of this story. Yeah, and for sure. Find out ways that you can. Like you're saying, it's also a world where you're making sure that you're complicating things, right? So there mm. are no easy bad guys. There are only people. There are no. There are people who do wrong things, but yeah. nobody consider. There are very few people who are like rubbing their hands, going, "I'm going to do evil <laughs> for evil's sake, even though I will ultimately be consumed. I just do it because it's my nature." They feel those guys like, are those guys are kind of like the either too high for you to fight or too low for you to bother with. Mm. The like most like we've tried to establish every villain in Spy. I mean, my favorite villain um is uh, from one of our uh, from one of our published adventures. It's just, it's a woman with a blood disease who's trying not to die and she's doing horrendous things to try not to die and um our campaign and uh, campaign ended basically with the characters kicking in the door of this woman's mansion and drowning her in a bath. And that and that was and that was the that was the victory. That was the big thing. Um, that it was really, it was really powerful to have that. It's like, actually, they're just desperate people like you, but they're on the wrong side of this. They're not good. They are evil. I want to stress this. They're doing horrible things, but there's no easy way out. It's not like like one of the things we really wanted to avoid was having like, oh, it was a demon. It was a big, it was a big monster which doesn't look like a human and doesn't have human failings. That kind of lets people off the the hook, right? And that's actually yeah. why, like, in all the kind of like zombie narratives and in aliens and stuff like that, that's mm. why that's why you have uh, Wayland Yatani because actually, mm. the aliens are scary as a kind of force of nature that forces people into situations, mm. but they're not it, evil. Yeah, they're not. They're not. They're kind of not evil. The kind of people who are interesting are the human beings who get scared and start making mistakes or. Mm have have greed that makes them do stuff that is mm. tactically suboptimal but is yeah. following a a path that they're interested in mm. um I, that's uh, thank you so much for all of this it's really okay. really exciting I, I was wondering if like to kind of finish things off um if you have any sort of uh, sort of one piece of a little piece of like advice or any kind of like little bit of um sort of game writing philosophy that you sure. could hand up to anyone who's like struggling to write who who feels like scared to move their character into areas they don't know or scared to create the world any anyone who's working on a book right now have you got anything mm. you can think take from your world and kind of yeah. hand it across 
I've got I've got the perfect analogy for this. Um, so Spire represents something very important to me. In that before I wrote Spire, none of my games had a setting. I uh, I had I've written a couple of uh, a couple of books before that. I mentioned Unbound earlier, which is universal, so there's no setting involved in that. It's just rules for telling stories. Uh, I'd written a game called Goblin Quest, which is sort of comedy fantasy, but the setting is alluded to in like lists of holidays and um, character abilities and stuff like that. I'd never sat down and and written a setting before because I was scared, and it tied back into one the social anxiety of um, of saying. Of being trapped in too many pubs with role players and having some guy explain a seventeenth level paladin to you, <laughs> and it's like, oh, oh, mate, I'm sure you had a great time, but you're telling me about a person who doesn't exist and I wasn't there. And so, getting quite frustrated at that, and and but like, but worrying that I was, I was that guy that I was just saying, and then I rolled a seventeen, but he rolled a four, <laughs> which is which is tremendously boring. But also, I was worried that. The settings I was putting together, the worlds I was building, were not good enough, and I was I and rather than rather than hide them and rewrite them over and over and build wikis, I just didn't bother. Instead, I gave people these little hooks and I gave people me- I gave people mechanisms which would drive stories in a certain direction, and I handed the keys over to the player. I was like, "Yeah, cool, you finish this. I've I've done the bits which I've done the bits which make it happen, but it'll be your story." And then Inspire, I actually I went away to a um, it was this ridiculous thing called Forward Slash Story. It was this creative this creative retreat for for it was it was for creators and it's, it's funded by some mysterious shadowy organization. Um, and uh, it was in it was in Costa Rica. I I was lucky enough to get a to get a place on the of one of the twenty people who went a couple of years ago. And I went and I was I was depressed at the time and I was um, struggling with self worth and people were saying like, Well, why do we create? And they were like, Oh, well, it's because we love we love people and we want to give them something and it was like, Oh, because I have a story I want to tell and I was like, Well, it's because I've got this howling void in my chest I want to fill with praise. Is that not why everyone else does it? <laughs> And because uh, I didn't take myself seriously, I was like, "Oh, well, you know what? Like these guys are filmmakers. These guys are novel writers. These guys are journalists. And I'm just writing stories about goblins. I'm not even writing stories about goblins. I'm giving you a machine to let you tell a silly story about goblins. This isn't a proper job." And I hung out with them for it was only a weekend. It's about it's like four or five days, I think. It was like either side of a weekend, and I went through it thinking, "Oh, this is a bit daft. This isn't really my sort. This isn't really my sort of thing. These exercises aren't really doing it for me." And I went away. And then I realised that it had infected me, and I started taking myself seriously. And I was like, "No, I am an artist. No, I am a writer. I can do these things. My my work has value. My work is art. Even if it's something called Jason Statham's Big Vacation, there is art inherent in that. It's not. It's not fucking you know Dostoevsky, but it's there's something there, and it has value. And so from that, I had this." Once I was no longer scared of preparing, once I was like, well, I'm going to write it, and I'm not going to worry about the entire arc of the world. I'm not going to worry about how water gets to this part of the city. What I'm going to write about is what I'm excited about when I look at the city. What's happening? What are the gross things? What are the uh, exciting... What's, what's going to happen tomorrow? What are the power blocks at play? What makes me, when I when I open a role-playing book, makes my brain fizz when I look at character abilities? And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to use that in a game. Hmm. And so we focused on that instead. Um, we focused on trying to tell, like trying to paint. Uh, I think um, it was—it's an impressionist rendering of the city. It's not simulationist. Like we're not entirely sure how Spire gets fed, but 
I know, but I can give you the names of, I think, a hundred different religions that operate in there. And nothing else aside from the names, because we thought the names were cool. And we, like, we, we just put forward what mattered. We put, we, we put forward this, this window on our world through the lens of people, through the lens of people which, um, th- through the lens of characters in that world who are doing things and who want things. How does the city reflect upon them? What do they need in that? And that was that was the thing. And then now we've got a 220-page book, most of which is setting, and which I'm not at all ashamed of, which I'm very proud of, in fact. Grant Howitt, thank you so much for coming on Death of a Thousand Cuts. It's, been, it's been a real... I, I, won't, I won't be too sucky, but it's been a real privilege to hear <laughs> your... Um, hear your thoughts on this thank I'm you very much. i'm buzzing i'm so excited i feel mm. very inspired and certainly um i'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who's interested in spire as well i think it's really exciting check it out and there's something just i, I think there's a whole new not new but um growing nascent genre and subset of fiction which is um which is communally told fiction, which is role-playing games that now people can watch. And I think mm. the book in itself is a is a fantastic work of mm. art where you can go and read and it's and it, and it, a description of an entire world that doesn't exist. And mm. it's wonderful, a taxonomy and encyclopedia of a place mm. that doesn't exist. Why? It's very has. Yeah, it's one. Well, exactly, exactly. It's absolutely terrific. Thank you so much for your time. Um, if people want to me. follow you on um. Twitter or find you via the internet. How yeah, can they sure. do so? Uh, you can go to um, my Twitter is gshowitt. That's gshowitt or gshowitt, as people like to convince me it's pronounced. Uh, I'm also if you want to if you want to look more into my books um, that I've written in my games, you can go to our, our sort of our corporate website, which is Rowan Rook and Deckard. Uh, Deckard without a K. Dot com, which has links to all of our games and all those, all those lists of ideas we were talking about earlier. Um, and if you're interested in my essays on role-playing, you can go to my website, which I have not updated in a year and a half, but still has all the old stuff on it, which is lookrobot.co.uk. Thank you very much. I shall put links to all of those in the show notes. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show. And to everybody uh, listening, thank you very much for listening. Uh, I hope that you have a wonderful week of uh, writing and of course, beyond, I'm not just limiting your fortune to a week. I don't have that kind of power. But certainly, <laughs> let's let's take take it as far as you can in the next seven days, and then we'll see where we're at. I hope some of this has been useful for you and imbued you with a spirit of adventure. And please share the podcast, and remember to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud, and maybe leave a review. All those boring things that are like manner to me. Um, take <laughs> care, and uh, I will see you soon. Goodbye.